We have a special episode today to commemorate our 250th show. We hope you enjoy this onstage interview with Nicole Chung and stick around afterwards for some virtual champagne and cake after the show. Hello, sons and daughters, story keepers and storytellers, grievers and legacy holders. Welcome to a special episode of Right Minded. I'm Brooke Warner, one half of this show, but you're only hearing from me today because the interview you're about to listen to with Nicole Chung is an onstage conversation we had last month at the Bay Area Book Festival. And it was such an honor to interview Nicole about her new book, A Living Remedy, which is a memoir about losing both her parents within a short period of time and how their deaths were exacerbated due to our medical system and also largely due to the fact of her parents' class. And that's in the sense that they really couldn't afford good care. And she gets into that in really meaningful and important ways, I think. It's a daughter's memoir that is honoring her adopted parents, and it's a beautiful testimony and also, at the same time, an indictment of our healthcare system and how it can fail the most vulnerable. So I highly, highly recommend this book. And when I did this interview with Nicole, I knew that my own father was dying and I left to fly down to Palm Springs literally the day afterward. And I was fighting in my own way uh, to advocate just to try to get him qualified for hospice that following week. And we got qualified the Tuesday after this interview and then hospice started on Friday and then I flew down again the following Sunday, and my dad died on Monday, so just a week after this interview. And I do want to share that uh, this book, A Living Remedy, was such a powerful companion for me as I sat going through some of the very same experiences that Nicole writes about, of not knowing what to do in the face of someone who is suffering, who's dying, uh, feeling like I wasn't doing enough railing against a system that makes you work far too hard to navigate what the best next decisions for your ailing loved ones should be. And so it's an important book. And it's one that I think deserves to be moved up your queue, uh, regardless of whether you have ailing parents or have gone through something similar like this or not. In the interview, I found Nicole to be so easy to talk to, so compassionate and also really humble. So thank you to Nicole. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. And I want to thank the Bay Area Book Festival, as always, for collaborating with Right Minded and allowing us to repurpose these interviews. And again, thanks to Nicole. Here's the interview. Nicole Chung is the author of the national bestseller, All You Can Ever Know, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, a semi-finalist for the Penn Open Book Award, and an Indies Choice Honor Book, and a gorgeous memoir. Uh, show of hands for who's read Nicole's first book. Oh, I love that. <laughs> uh, her work has appeared in numerous publications, including The Atlantic, The New York Times, Time, Guardian, Slate, and elsewhere, and Nicole has flown out to join us from the D.C. area. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here with me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an honor. And we're we're going to be talking about the new book, uh, A Living Remedy, but also I'll probably weave in some questions uh, that have to do with the first book because you've written two memoirs. And I wanted to start there because I've heard you say that you didn't intend to really write a second memoir necessarily. Uh, so I'd love to just start with the genesis of the book. And you know, at what point did you think to yourself, I have a book in me on what turned out to be a living remedy? 
Right. So actually, I'm one of those writers who's very shocked to find myself writing memoir at all. I think when you're growing up as a little kid and you're like, I'm going to be a writer someday, no one is like, no one's thinking about like writing their memoir. <laughs> and like my mother's reaction to me writing my first book was, um, but you're not famous. So like, basically, how can you write a memoir? Who will read it? <laughs> um, and so I was very shocked to find myself like working, contemplating on working on another one. Um, and this book in particular had like a really strange genesis. I think any book, but especially your first book and especially a memoir, like sometimes fellow memoirists will joke, like you basically spent your whole life up to that point getting ready to write that. And then when it's over, you're like, what now? <laughs> and um, I... I had lost my father, and my father had died actually the, right before All You Can Ever Know came out. Like He died that year. And I had already started to write a little bit about grief and like my grief, my mother's grief, and what that experience was like. I was starting to think perhaps it might be a book because one of the things both she and I were grappling with really was our anger um, at the injustice of how my father died at 67 um, you know, due in part to precarity and a lack of access to healthcare for many years, like so many people in this country. And as much as I'd read about grief, and as much as many of those stories had meant to me, I had not really seen a lot of grief books that sort of took that on. Even though it's such a common experience for so many of us, and it's it's part of how we are forced to face illness and loss in this country, right? Without all the support, resources, and care we need. Um, and I was thinking perhaps that would be a resonant story for others to read as well, especially if they'd shared some experience like that in their family. And then um, right after I had sold a book based on, on this, um, my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And at that point, everything, everything changed. Um, she actually started hospice care around the same time the first coronavirus cases were being reported in the U.S. And so at that point, I knew... I mean, it wasn't just that my life and my mother's life had changed, right? The world was changing. Um, and I put the book down, like, for, for quite a while while I was focused on caring for her and focused on caring for my family. And I had two kids at home doing Zoom school all the time. Um, like, whatever, whatever concerns, I think, um, a lot of the same concerns that a lot of people had at that time, plus my mother was dying and across the country. So... Um, she died in the spring of 2020, and, and I wasn't able to be at her funeral. Like so many people, I live-streamed a funeral in those months. Um, and it was probably six or seven months after that that I started writing again. And so at that point, I didn't really know what this book would become. I honestly did not know if I could still write it. I had not, never anticipated writing a book about losing both of my adoptive parents. Um, but it wasn't the kind of thing, you know, I could not just pretend things hadn't happened. Like from the pandemic to my mother's illness to whatever followed. Um, when you write memoir, all that stuff comes in. So um, eventually I realized the core of the book, what really was going to give it its arc um, and its heart, it was going to be this relationship with my mom. And I, I figured out the book should really begin and end with her and me. And um, and so that was, once I figured out that was how I would tell the story of losing both of them, it was just a matter of, you know, trusting myself through that long writing process, which I, I wrote this book during, during the pandemic, which is, of course, ongoing. Um, but while it was during that year when we were all still really at home was when I did a lot of the, the bulk of the writing. Um, so this book is very much not the book I thought I would be writing um, after All You Can Ever Know. It's not the book... I thought I would even be writing when I sold it initially, but it is, it is very much like 
a product of this time that we live in, and at the same time, you know, I hope there the themes in it and and the way it's written can speak to for, to people for you know for some time to come. Well, I'd love to jump off on that, the way that it's written, because the structure is much different from your first book, and you're writing really from the moment. You're writing from the present, and then you're dropping into the past, and it is a really ambitious project for a memoir, because memoirs tend to have linear structures, or sometimes the way that they're told is not so... um, I guess I felt like it was... it was sort of a journey, you know, through your memories, and then, as you said, multiple themes. I mean, you're clearly tackling grief and your relationship with your parents and, you know, all of these things about the distance from them and COVID. So how did you piece it together? I mean, I appreciate what you're saying about, like, okay, it's about your relationship with your mom, but how did you decide, okay, I'm going to write it from here and kind of do it in this patchwork way? So my mother was really the storyteller in my family, like, long before I was. And it's one of those things where um, sometimes you don't realize certain things about someone until you're losing them or have lost them. I didn't realize what a storyteller my mother was because it was just always there in the background. Like, even many of the anecdotes in A Living Remedy about my father's life and upbringing, those are from my mother. You know, she was the one who told me. She was always kind of... I don't want to say she was a bridge between us because my father and I were close, but like dad didn't talk about himself a lot. Like my mother talked about everything and anything. And um, so it was actually like, that was partly why I knew like her and our relationship, that was going to be the the first access point for the story. Um, I was really surprised actually that the book has the somewhat linear structure it does have because it's not how I usually write. I like to hop back and forth in time. Um, and, and my first book did that much more, you know, but, uh, it was just, it was kind of the way this story needed to be told. Like I had tried different structures and they weren't quite working. So there are exceptions to that. Like the first chapter, the last chapter, there are definitely some parts that are like out of chronological order, but linear actually wound up working for large chunks of this story. Um, and the structure was so much trial and error. I mean, I had about five or six different like first chapters for this book. Um, the exception to like the trial and error was, um, I think I knew really early on what the last chapter would be. And once I figured that out, I still had to write like more than half the book, but I knew where I was going and that helped a little bit. Um, the actual writing process was so different because uh, I was doing it again at home in isolation, but like also part of it while working a full-time job and trying to like support my kids in like full-time school Zoom uh, mode. It was it was a hard time, but I think I ultimately felt a great deal of freedom writing this book. I think um, it just required so much of me, maybe because it was a very ambitious project and a very the events were so close. You know, I was writing about things either after or like right after they happened. The grief was very fresh. The trauma was really fresh. I really had to take care of myself and trust myself um, and have like a different relationship to my work and writing than I've had before. Um, I think this book has a much more like meditative feel than the first book. And I think it also feels a bit more immediate and urgent because of what you're saying, because like these events were were happening as I was as I was writing them, um, so it was a new experience. But it was, and it was a very hard book to write, obviously. But it was also a really, like, rewarding and sometimes freeing book to work on. 
Yeah, meditative is a great word. I, I felt that as I was reading. And on the way over, I shared with you that my own father is in a dying process right now. And I really appreciated what you said that uh, the book, you were glad the book could be a companion to me during this time. And it, it was. And I wanted to ask you about anticipatory grief, you know, because in your case, as in mine, you know something is coming. It's not there. You don't know when it's coming. And with your father, it was obviously very different because with your mom, COVID hits. And I think probably the emotion, most emotional part of your book for me was you not being able to get there for her. And so I'd just love for you to speak a little bit about your this, you know, as people like me are saying to, you know, me too, I'm going through this and it's comforting. Um, you know, was that your hope for the book? Because you're trying to put so much context around the failure of the medical system and also the ways in which we, you know, don't really take care of elderly and dying people very well. I mean, one thing about, one thing I really wanted the book to do was draw attention to um, the fact that we put so much focus in our, in this country and in our society, in our culture on individual responsibility, right? And I mean, what do we owe each other? What do we owe the people in our families? What do we as children owe our parents, our elders? And like that, those are good discussions to be having, um, but of course, like the way it works out then is that we end up feeling like in a crisis or when someone is sick or when someone is dying, like it's all on us. You know, we are often left kind of alone and without all the support and resources that we do need. And like after my father died, I remember just feeling um, I was really wrestling with what I hadn't been able to do for him. And in that case, it was like practical, it was medical. It was like, what could I not provide? What could I not do to like save him uh, and prevent him from dying at 67? Because neither my mother nor I believed that was inevitable. Like we don't believe that had to happen, right? Um, and at the same time, like, I think when there's this focus on individual responsibility, what it can often do is let entire failing systems and structures off the hook. You know, it is our, our job and it is our sometimes joy and privilege to be able to care for one another. And at the same time, like, unless you are incredibly wealthy, like, you cannot literally provide all the health care, like, all of the support, like, practical, financial, and medical that someone will, emotional, emotional, that someone will need going through an illness or experiencing a loss. Um, and it sounds strange to say maybe, but part of my actual grieving process was confronting that and accepting it, the limits, like, my limitations, what I could not do, um, and just thinking about, you know, how to, like, forgive myself for what I couldn't do for my dad. With with my mom, it was a very different circumstance, um, you know, and my parents passed just two years apart, but she was in a very different situation with, with her cancer. I had expected I would be able to be there physically and practically for her. Um, and with COVID, because of when she entered hospice and when she died, like, I was not able to be with her. And so very different circumstances, but in both cases, sort of wrestling with what I could and could not do and as their daughter and also recognizing, you know, there were, there were also reasons for, for things that I wasn't able to do. I wasn't like they, we were up against so much and in many ways we're kind of left on our own to try to muddle through. That's what we do. And at the same time, like I didn't really want, I don't want their story to just be considered one of like American tragedy, right? I think, of course, they were so much more than that. And what I hope also comes through in the book is just the fact that it's a story of 
my parents, my family's like struggle and like resistance in spite of these systems that weren't set up to serve us and didn't in the end. Um, I think it's a story of love and and how how love can make us more resilient than we would have been. And so those are also some themes that I really wanted to be able to explore. Yeah, well, it's, and it's, and you do it very well. It's, I, I think one of the things I like is how you're grappling with a lot of intellectually rigorous questions, but then there's also the very personal part of memoir. And some of the stuff that resonated with me is like when you're talking about yourself as a machine, you know, and like that you're just going through the processes and you're busy. And, you know, you say that a couple of different times in the book. And then there's other parts where you're really grappling with your, uh, like where you fall short. I feel, I felt a couple of different times in the book that you were very hard on yourself, but in a way that resonated with me, you know, I think daughters, sons too, but maybe daughters more, we fall into that role of like, it's all on us and we have to do something. So I'm curious just about writing about that stuff, you know, in terms of what it takes to be hard on yourself in a way that of course felt very true, but is also, I mean, I can't imagine that that's an easy kind of thing to write about either. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, speaking to the part about sort of how I would view myself like a machine or treat myself like a machine, I think I was much more guilty of this in the aftermath of my father's death, you know, and I, part of it was that I had a book out that year, and there were just things that an author has to do for their book that nobody else can do for you, um, and nobody else could go on tour for me, and, and it was a privilege and a joy to get to do that, you know, but there were, it was definitely a hard thing to get through while grieving, and I just remember, like, I wasn't expecting this to resonate maybe the way it has, but I keep hearing from readers about, like, there's a part in the book where I say, like, I'm an expert at grieving under capitalism. (laughs) And, like, realizing that, you know, at the time, and then, like, going through it not once but twice, because when my mother was dying, I was still working full-time and parenting two kids at home with uh, schools closed and thinking, oh, what I really wanted was to actually take some medical leave or something, and having no way to take unpaid leave because I was at this, this point financially supporting my mother. Um, just like, again, like realizing what you might want to do to take care of yourself. You might even know it is the right or healthy thing and like having no no recourse to actually do it the way our society was structured. Um, so I don't know, like I think in terms of how hard I was on myself, am on myself, it's, it's a pattern I'll be trying to challenge as long as I'm alive. Um, but it has been important to realize that um, again like I'm not individually responsible and neither are you for structural failings you know for gaps in the safety net for systems that don't really serve us Um, one of the great lies I think of our capitalist society is that we're made to feel like we're responsible or we're to blame when we aren't suddenly expert navigators of these systems but in fact they are set up so that you cannot be Um, I don't know like I I think I like need to remind myself of that quite often and that we're all hopefully just trying to do the best we can within systems that we recognize are imperfect. Um, it is still our our role and our privilege to try to take care of the people we love. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely like a tension that exists in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the first book, obviously, is so much about your journey of being an adopted child and your identity and finding your birth family. Um, And I mean, you write really eloquently, I think, about the the sort of 
color blindness that your adopted parents had and maybe that was told to them like you know you don't see race and it comes up again in this book which I really liked you know I like that you come back to it and circle it because um, I just before I read your book I actually read Surviving the White Gaze by Rebecca Carroll and um, she told me that you two know each other and so and that's such a different kind of experience because she's really taking her parents to task and I think particularly in this book you're honoring your parents in this really beautiful way but there's inevitably this stuff around being adopted and being the only not just Korean but literally only Asian in your community and so I'm curious if you know whereas like in the first book it really felt like you were you know maybe examining their role and kind of how hard things were for you in this one it's almost like a reverse of that you know examining your own uh, shortcomings as a daughter and I'm curious about that you know the difference like how it felt to write about them after they were gone uh, you know, as opposed to in the first book when you're kind of grappling with mm-hmm. just the, the complications of their role in your identity. I mean, I basically just tried to tell the truth in both books as I saw it. Um, and it's interesting, like my parents, my adoptive parents were both really supportive of the first book, which is not to say I was not anxious showing it to them, because <laughs> I was. Um, I knew it was not like a gotcha book, and I knew... You know, I think their love for me and mine for them comes through very strongly in that first book. Um, and at the same time, like I told the truth, uh, my truth about being a Korean adoptee, about being raised in a family, I should say, that was not colorblind, but like thought that that was a nice ideal. <laughs> like nobody, nobody truly is race blind. Like anyone who says they are is, is not telling the truth or not like quite realizing that they're not telling the truth. But like in raising me the way they did, like race is irrelevant. All that matters is like love and um and who you are on the inside you know my parents were following the advice of like adoption experts at the time that they adopted so um it was I mean I never saw that first book as really taking them to task at all I think I was very much trying to tell the truth and to complicate this adoption narrative that so many times in our culture even in especially in like books and TV shows is presented as something very simple and straightforward but of course the reality is far more complex um, I really did want to just share that perspective as a transracial adoptee and and, and complicate that narrative a bit. Um, with the second book, I mean, it's just an entirely different sort of project. It's not that my identity isn't relevant, but it's taking on, it's just taking on so many bigger and like broader issues like grief and illness and elder care. Um, you know, in, in various ways, I was also trying to kind of draw attention to the fact that we have a real elder care crisis in our society. Um, and you know, just the impossible situation that families are put in. And then even though I very much did not want to write about the pandemic, the pandemic came, comes into this book a bit because that is, that is when I lost my mom. Um, and all of the like structural and societal issues that sort of that revealed as well, playing out in an intimate story of like, me, a daughter unable to reach her dying mother because of what was happening all around us. Um, It was, you know, in terms of, I I guess to answer your question, which I realize I'm (laughs) rambling, I'm drifting a bit, sorry, but I think I wasn't necessarily thinking about, like, in this book I'm doing this in relation to, like, the story of my, with me and my parents, and in this book I'm consciously doing something different. I mean, I'm a memoirist. I set out to tell the truth, um, recognizing that it's only mine and that it's complicated, Um, And something I think about a lot, actually, is what my father said to me 
before he passed away, uh, when he was reading my first book, and he said, like, this is not the book your mother or I would have written about our family, and that's okay. Like, the point is that it's your book, and it's your experience, it's your memory, and it's the truth, um, which I thought was such a very, like, incisive and also generous response to that book. Um, so I'm very conscious of the fact that what, what, you're, what I'm presenting and what you get every time you read a memoir is one person's truth, one person's perspective. There are, I'm showing you one view and I know it very well and it is the truth, but there are like whole vistas that exist beyond it. And if my mother were to tell this story or my father or somebody else who knew them, it would be different. Um, but I, I did it in this book and to me it's very much like, it's not an act of like representation in the same way the first book was, but I'm representing my family. Like I'm sh trying to show you who they were. Um, and show you like the complex truth of that, and and do it in a way that hopefully like makes makes you think about your own families and your own lives and your own losses. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that. Well, and writing, I mean, reading the two books not back to back by any means, but you know, within a year of each other. So that and it's interesting to see. I mean, I think it's almost like a, a case for why there can be multiple memoirs in a single person because I actually loved getting more depth about your parents, you know, who didn't show up nearly as much in the right. first book as they do in this book and the generosity of spirit and just how lovely your mother was, you know, and so it's a, it's a real honoring of that. I wanted to circle back to COVID because the only other experience in book publishing that I can think of in our lifetimes is 9-11 where there's where memoirists circle into something you know to write often and i think obviously COVID is going to be that for many memoirists now that we've all lived through it collectively and it lasted so long um and since you're a book editor and i'm a book editor sometimes when people go into 9-11 i'm a little bit like uh you know everything has been said um and when you wrote about COVID, it was so interesting to me because it was so close um, and yet you write about it in such a poignant way and it was like leading me through something that I had just been through and, and you know, our kids are similar ages and, you know, all these things that you were going through. So I'm curious if you felt a responsibility, you know, to write about such a, um, a collective event. Honestly, if I could have written the book and left COVID out, I would have happily done that. Um, <laughs> I was really conscious of not wanting to write like a COVID book, and it's not—it's not a COVID book. I mean, there's—it comes into a couple of chapters. There was no writing about losing my mom without writing about the time in which I lost her and like the reasons that we could not be together. Um, but I didn't want to just like. I mean, this is the struggle with memoir in general. It's not really supposed to be like event, event, event. And like, this is what happened to me. I mean, first of all, the point with the pandemic is also that it happened to all of us. I don't have to tell you what spring 2020 was like. You all remember, <laughs> right? I don't have to tell you what that first long COVID winter was like. No one was thriving. Like, you remember that. You lived it. Um, but the point, I think, and where I think memoir, like, justifies its existence is if it can meet readers where you are. And if it can make you think about what you went through, like your lives and experiences at that time, if it can make you feel like less alone in that, um, I think that's really, it's one of the most important things that the genre can do. Um, and so that was sort of the goal with some of those sections too. And I knew it wasn't gonna take a lot to evoke spring 2020 for people. It's still very fresh. Um, but at the same time, it did feel, once I got into it, 
I, it surprised me that it wasn't something I felt the need to like shrink away from, you know, I, it was just like the dual, the dual trauma of that time of like losing my mom while in this time of enormous fear and suffering. And I think much of it sometimes preventable suffering. There's been this real temptation, I think, in our society to want to look away from that or to forget it. And I don't think we should forget it. I don't think we should look away from it. Um, I know so many people who weren't able to be with dying loved ones. I know so many people who live streamed funerals. I don't think that we can ignore that pain or the fact that it is still ongoing and in some cases families are still being kept apart. And um, it was just, it was really important to me to include that, I think, because in a very different way than the way I sort of took on like the healthcare system with my father. I mean, it was something that so many people I knew had, had gone through, you know, had lived with and were still trying to find a way to live with. Um, and so I hope that the book could be a place for, for those people too, who, if you experience loss during a pandemic, I mean, I don't have to tell you what it was like, but I hope this book can keep you company in that experience. Yeah. And it does, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to ask you about what you find most rewarding and maybe most surprising about making the transition to become an author. And I know, I'm not sure how recently, but now you're a full-time writer as well. So, uh, yeah, just to speak to that difference of having had a full-time job and now obviously being a full-time writer means you're working all the time if you want to. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, so I, I left my job in publishing. When What is time? It was like... <laughs> fall 2021 um, and since then I have been a full-time writer uh, it is not very lucrative <laughs> um, but I think I mean I've been really enjoying it and I feel really lucky to be able to do this and I don't know how long I will be able to do it I mean what I always say about writing is it supports me now and I don't know if that will be true a year from now um, but right now it's good <laughs> and I've been you know just so thankful to have the time and space particularly because I was able to really I had drafted a lot of the book. I think I still had to finish it, and then I still had to revise. And not trying to work a full-time job while I did that was incredibly... I was like, is this this is amazing. This is why writers quit their jobs. <laughs> like, if they can... Um, I just... I hadn't done that with the first book. I worked full-time through the writing, the revising, the publication, the promotion. Um, I don't think this book would be the book it is or the book it needed to be if I had tried to do it while right while while editing full time. Um and it just I mean the main factor in it getting finished and being the book it is is just I think me learning to show myself more patience and more care as a writer and me learning to trust myself more as a writer. But those things happened in part because I did transition to full time writing and I'm, you know, really aware of what a privilege that is. I can't remember where I heard you say this because I listened to several interviews of you in preparation for today, but there was a place where you were talking about active memory and it really struck me and I don't know if that's something you think about a lot, but if it is, I'd love you to say more about it because I teach memoirists and so of course like there's so much that memoirists grapple with that is specific to memoir and so can you talk about you know just how you think about memory and what you meant by active memory? There's a lot that I could say about that. I think um, one context I think about it and one reason why writing the book was, was difficult was because active memory meant uh, you know, spending so much time with my parents and with 
my grief for them. Um, you know, there were times writing this when I would just like weep, which is not not typically how I write. Um, and I just had to let myself like recognize that was part of part of what this process was going to be. And at the same time, it was really nice to get to nice is not the right word. Um, it was really meaningful to get to spend that time doing that active memory work for this book. Oh no. Um, so like, I think, I don't know, like I'm really grateful for that, like that part of the writing process in a way, as hard as it was. Um, another way I think about active memory is, um, poor thing, um, is that I, I think one of the things memoirs struggle with the most is writing about a really strong feeling after the fact. It's just very hard. It can be really hard to access those feelings and then translate them to the page. And as a writer, it's just honestly not great writing either to say I was sad. Like, of course you were. Um, so like, uh, I, don't, I don't usually name emotions. What I figured out with this book, and I wish I'd learned it earlier, was trying to remember how certain experiences felt in my body. Um, and this is probably something, too, that I couldn't have done before because... Up until this point, I think I tended to view my, like, my writing is like my brain. The brain is the part that, like, makes what I want to do possible. My body is this, like, meat sack I drag around that I have a fraught relationship with, you know. But, like, it's my brain that matters. And I have a much more, like, integrated view of myself now. It's been a long time in coming, and, and grief has been part of it. But this was the first long project I've worked on where I did really feel, I don't know, like, more in touch with writing as a physical process, I guess, um, and like having a physical relationship to my work. And so when I was trying to remember like, and write about certain things, like a hard conversation with my mom when she was dying or how I felt flying home from my dad's funeral, um, I wasn't necessarily thinking, what were you feeling? I was thinking, what, how did it feel in your body in those moments? And then translating that to the page. And it was enormously helpful. It was hard, like hard work. Um, cause I, this time of year does it to me. Like spring will throw me back to the spring of 2020. Everything's blooming. And like, suddenly I will be back like in those weeks when my mom was dying and I couldn't get to her. But at the same time, that's such a strong physical memory that writing about it after, like I was able to access that. Um, so that's kind of what I meant by active memory. For me, it is, it is actually like a really physical process. It's being aware and like thinking back to how those moments felt physically. And that's what allows me to write about them. I, I'm so glad you said that, actually, because I think that body part really does show in the descriptions, you know, and it's what makes it so much more visceral. And then as readers, I think we can kind of step into it in a way, which is really great. Um, we're getting close to Q&A, so I do want to encourage people to start thinking. And then we have a mic runner, so we'll, we'll do that. Uh, I guess... I'm wondering about people will say memoir is healing, you know, and then sometimes people will say that, you know, the idea of it being cathartic is sort of an insult to memoirists. <laughs> and I'm curious what you think about this project in particular, you know, whether it has been cathartic and what you think about in general, that idea that memoir is, or, you know, should or shouldn't be healing. I, I don't think of writing writing period or like writing memoir specifically as therapeutic or cathartic. Um, which is not to say I don't think writing can serve that purpose or that I don't think that that has a lot of value. Um, I'm a lifelong journaler used to be daily is less often now, but like that is very much about that is therapeutic. That is catharsis. That is for me. But when I write something like a book, 
and I know it's for public consumption, it's not really for me anymore. It's not even it's not even mostly for me. I mean, it's mostly for readers. And I'm I'm thinking like, what is there going to be for you to find to hold on to? And like, can it matter to you? Can I make it matter to you? Um, what's my reason for putting it out into the world? It's not me. It's you. Uh, that said, like, maybe. Maybe the, the closest thing I can think of is that when I found I could work on this book again, I knew I must be like in a slightly better place. You know, because I'd mentioned putting it down for like a year while my mother was dying, and then for several months after she had passed, I could not really work on it, right? When I found I could get back to it, and when I found I was actually curious about it again, or even like a little bit excited to be writing again and to be spending that time doing the active memory work, uh, writing about my family and these, these bigger things, um, that was kind of a sign that like, okay, there is something here. Like maybe there is still a book and, and it's important to me. And then like, that was how I got back into it. I knew if I were still in this place of grief where all I could do was feel anger or all I could do was like punish or blame myself. Like that's not a place you can create from. Um, so when I found I could write again, that's when I knew, like, I wasn't coming out of it. There's no coming out of grief. But I was in a different place than I had been before. Well, it's great. It kind of takes us full circle because when your mother said, well, how can you write a memoir if you're not famous? And then it's, that's the, that's the thing about memoir. I mean, you might get famous, like you're getting famous, but I think it's also the case that obviously what people are coming to the page for is all the subject matter that you're exploring, um, so, okay, really quick, one last thing I want to know about before we turn to the audience is uh, just about, you write really beautifully about um, all this, you know, the grappling that you're doing with the healthcare system. I mean, there's parts, uh, like little pieces that I almost felt like turned into essays or could have been. And I wonder if that's a space that you want to, you know, write more into or do advocacy for since it's so important. It's, it's a good question. Actually, like some of what you're picking up on could be because um, initially I wanted this book to be like a memoir in essays. It's not what it is. It's apparently like that's not how I write memoir. Um, but it's like the first book. It's, you know, it's like a novel, but it's true. Um, uh, but I, I mean, there are pieces of it where like if I were going to take it and mine it for essays or something, like that is one place obviously where I would. It's much more... Um, I don't think it's it's preachy. I don't think it's a polemic. I don't think I have to do that. I think the facts are very damning. So just kind of presenting the facts of what happened to my family is an indictment of not just the healthcare system, but the various parts of the safety net that never caught them. Um, so that is something that like I think I have written about and probably will continue to try to. And there are I, I dabble in journalism, and there are other things I've written that have kind of veered in that direction as well. So we'll see. Um, yeah, I don't know. I would still like to write a book of essays someday. Um, so yeah, perhaps, but it was, it was really interesting to write about like that topic because a lot of my interviews have been really focused on structural failings and the, the broken healthcare system. And it's not that I wasn't expecting to be talking about that, but, um, you know, I don't think I'm not a policy person. I mean, I've read and studied a lot, but I'm not, it's not my background. And so it's been interesting that this very personal, intimate story is for people becoming like a way into these conversations. I think yeah. that's what stories can do. And the personal is political. So Absolutely, that, yeah. It's but, some, for some of us, I think it's the way that we really make sense of how big of a problem it is, right? So 
I was told recently when I was in Portland that the one of the interviews I had done um, was with OPB, the Oregon NPR affiliate, and it had been submitted to uh, as testimony in the Oregon Healthcare for All initiative, which I was like really moved by because also that's my home state. Um, and my parents were denied the Oregon Health Plan, which I mentioned in the book, which is there. So it was just it was an interesting moment, you know, to think about. I wouldn't have thought a discussion I had about my book, my memoir. Would would kind of play this role in like a policy discussion, but I'm very I'm very honored that that's the case. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. I hope you enjoyed Nicole Chung. Please check out both of her memoirs, A Living Remedy and All You Can Ever Know. Both are spectacular. And thanks for tuning in today. Right Minded will be back to our regular program flow next week with me and Grant. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks for sharing with a friend. Thanks for being part of our broader writing community. See you next week.